Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Well, you know, sometimes you just have to sit down and talk about politics. And this week on the podcast, I'm joined by one of my favorite guests, uh, Dr. Stephanie Witt, a Boise State University political science professor. And yes, one of my favorite professors from my grad school days at BSU. Uh, Dr. Witt and I, we, we cover a lot of ground in this interview. We talk about school board elections uh, from West Bonner and beyond. And we talk about some state house news, and we even managed to get in a little bit of a discussion about uh, what's going on in Congress. We don't go into much detail because really what is there to say about what's happening on Capitol Hill? A lot happening though at uh, the state and local level. Here's my interview with Dr. Stephanie Witt. Dr. Witt, thanks again for joining us on the podcast. It's always nice to catch up with you and, and talk about politics. It feels like we have two election cycles to talk about starting the school board races. Well, some big decisions coming up for um, patrons of districts all over the state, really. And, and it, it feels really different. I mean, these school board elections feel different for a lot of different reasons. The timing, you know, putting these elections alongside of other municipal races, even though it's a nonpartisan election, kind of, you know, it brings more attention to these races than back when they were standalone races back in May. I agree. I, I also think, though, that that we're seeing the uh, phenomena that, that they're calling the nationalization of local politics, right? You've, you've talked about this before. Sure. Um, you know, that, that we're seeing an increased focus on these local races, things that people, you couldn't hardly get anybody to run for previously, library district boards and uh, community college trustee positions and school trustee positions. And so I think there are a certain number of candidates who are looking to have a fight about these national culture war issues in their own school districts. And so it's motivating them to run, they're being encouraged to run, and, um, and they're bringing those national level fights to our local uh, governing boards. And it feels like we spent most of the summer watching this all unfold in West Bonner with the Brandon Durst hire, with, with the pushback between patrons and trustees, and ultimately the recall of those two trustees. How much of that is a one-off and how much of that is a harbinger of maybe bigger things in terms of school board politics, local politics? You know. Well, I doubt it's the last time we're going to see that. Um, and of course, in full disclosure, Brandon Durst is a former student of mine, as you are of mine. Um, <laughs> I've known him for a while. Um, I think it's hardly the last one, but I, I'm not sure what the moral of that story is as it moves along because of course the recall election had enormous turnout 63 percent in an august election that's almost unheard of and it wasn't even close so the you know the two board members who really engaged in that um culture war language and and mission they got recalled handily easily so I'm not sure if that's the moral of that story, that, that the pendulum will begin to swing back towards sort of a more moderate approach to, a more pragmatic approach to, to education, or if we're likely to see this replay in district after district all over the state. Right. I mean, is it something that voters look at and say, you know, one way or the other, you know, I, I want to take a stand and be involved in school politics at the local level, or do voters look at it and say, well, you know, how interesting what's happening up there, but, you know, it didn't really affect us. I would think this is going to motivate a lot of parents whose concern are, are really just 
practical things. I want my kid to know enough to be able to go on to the next thing, whether that's a job or a voc tech or um, college, and, and be successful, right? So if the schools are tied up in knots, not really getting the work done of getting our kids educated, I think that, that motivates parents in every kind of district. That they want to see the district focused on absolutely achievement. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, mean, I think the, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, it appears that the almost end of that story up there at West Bonner is that the, the people who wanted education for education's sake to happen seemed more successful. It's still kind of a smattering. As I look yeah. at the school board elections as they, as they line up right mm -hmm. now across the state, I mean, a lot of districts, you still have unopposed races. You still have, you know, probably districts that are still looking for people to. Right. You know, to take this volunteer job, and then you still have, and then at the same time, you've got what seem to be some pretty hot races shaping up around the state, including West Bonner, where three trustees are going to be back on the ballot. It's Absolutely, um, it looked like some of the local um, districts had competitive races in all. Like West Data have has more than one candidate in all of their races, right? So, I that's a sign of a. I think of, of a healthy electorate, you know, that there are people willing to serve. Um, it's a lot harder to find people to run for office and serve if elected in a small rural community than it is in the largest district in the state, though. And that's not just a school board issue. I mean, you, that's you, you, you every deal with kind of municipal yep. and, and yep. county and, you know, highway district, you know, <laughs> sewer district, you name it. Those are tougher races to find candidates in in rural Idaho. Yeah, your bench isn't deep, right? You know, if someone retires or moves away or, you know, has a child, can't serve for a little while, there's not, there aren't a hundred other choices behind. And it kind of comes back to a fundamental question that I feel like we have to ask trustee candidates. Why do you want this job? It's a volunteer job. Yeah. You're getting paid in agony in some districts. I mean, with patrons who have a lot of concerns, who have maybe a lot of pent up issues about school board politics from the pandemic, you know, now into these culture wars. Who wants this job? <laughs> well, that's a really good question. And I wonder sometimes if we're gonna, you know, see unopposed candidates because no one else is willing to take that kind of punishment. Um, and of course, it's kind of a punishment if you're a culture warrior and you do get elected and then you discover that you're sitting through 200 hours about whether to replace a boiler in the furnace or uh, what the benefit package should be for your employees. And almost none of it has to do with cultural, cultural policies like, you know, critical race theory or uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's, it's all this technical stuff that it takes to run a, a district. It's a lot more of a nitty gritty. Oh, yeah. It's like being on the city council. It's a lot different than being a legislator. It's, yep. it's much less policy. It's much more implementation uh, from you know, the superintendent's contract to, you know, negotiating with the teacher's union to student discipline. I mean, it's, it's wonky work. It is. It is. And so I think if you're, if you go into that hoping that you get to spend every meeting, you know, arguing these big ideas, um, you're probably disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> In the districts where we are seeing some races, the school districts that are kind of jumping out at me, I'm noticing some things that I, I wonder how much it really affects an election like this. I mean, money. I'm seeing pockets of a, a good deal of money in some of these races. West Ada, we've got one school board candidate has loaned his campaign $50,000. That feels like an unheard of amount in the school board election. We've got other races where candidates have raised you know, 
you know, $10,000, $15,000 already. Does it matter as much in a race that's so hyper-local? You know, I, I wish I had some state or national data to refer to on this, but it's just, I don't. I, this is just my gut feeling about this, that um, money doesn't guarantee you're going to win, but it helps if you're trying to buy name recognition and, and you do that through the distribution of campaign materials and through buying ads on social media and maybe even television or radio. So uh, you, the money helps get your name out there to everybody, but I'm not sure that's enough. Um, I, many of those races are uh, small enough and specific enough that the patrons know the name of the person that they're familiar with, and, and so the money may be less relevant in those smaller scale trustee races. The money, to some degree, buys awareness. I mean, a lot of Absolutely. people don't really know these elections are going on. They, they may not necessarily realize that school board elections are now November elections because that's a fairly recent change in the law. Yep. How about endorsements? I mean, I'm curious about this because uh, we've seen some endorsements in the uh, school board elections in Kootenai County, the Kootenai County Republican Central Committee, as they do, yeah. is endorsing, even though these are nonpartisan races, and softer endorsements. As I look at the Sunshine Reports, you can see some fairly prominent you know, you know, Democrats have supported right. some, some candidates uh, around the state, school board candidates around the state. How much does that matter, do you think? Again, hyper-local race. Yeah, it's hard to say, isn't it? Um, I think that um, we're hanging on to the nonpartisan nature of these races by a thread. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we've seen this in city politics, uh, at least in, in Boise City yeah, politics. Boise mayor's race that is nonpartisan in name only. Right. And that's been the case for some time. And, and we see the candidates for city council often you know, sort of borrowing or using or buying, however one does that, the, the networks of get-out-the-vote people and volunteers that are tied to the Democratic Party, for example. So um, maybe it buys you access to some uh, networks of volunteers and, and vendors that you can use to get your name out and, and buy the awareness. And so it might, it might be making a difference in that sense. Um, you know, my, my colleague Jackie Kettler studies how campaign finance works in the sense that, that you know, if you have a lot of money in your uh, piggy bank as, a, as an elected office holder, you know, you, you can spread that money around to others who have a tough race and help them. And it, it makes a network of um, helping the other people in your party as well as maybe, you know, gaining access to them for a decision later on, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I, maybe what we're seeing is the beginnings of, of that kind of um, endorsements where the, the people who do have a lot of campaign money are, are spreading it around to other candidates that they would like to see win as well. And maybe let's just take a step back to, about this, because as you say, they're nonpartisan by a thread right yeah. now. Mm -hmm. But they've been nonpartisan since since statehood. I mean, school board elections have yep. been nonpartisan. City elections have been nonpartisan, which make them kind of outliers in, in among elections in Idaho. Why is that, and why is that significant, important um, mm. from a policy perspective? Well, I think some of that has to do with um, the fact that Idaho came to statehood as the progressive reform movement was really peaking, and we see a lot of progressive reform elements in our institutions. 
Um, the fact that we have the initiative referendum and the recall, uh, nonpartisan elections at the municipal level, and school boards are, are a couple of examples. And, and I think that was done originally to, to try to preserve those institutions from the uh, untoward influence of politics, in particular, you know, machine politics that's associated with the late 1800s kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So um, it's like with roads and bridges and cities, you know, the old saying used to be, there's no Democrat or Republican way to build a road. There's just the best way, right? Mm -hmm. and, and schools, I think, you know, we want to, to protect them from politics. Um, and, and that's not a thing I see people worrying about as much. Now I see that at least there are groups, subgroups, uh, who want to bring the politics into the school district and, um, and get their way on things that they feel are important. Yeah, I find myself, I find myself thinking of Jerry Evans, who mm -hmm. was you know, elected in partisan statewide elections as yep. state superintendent, as a, as a Republican, who would always say, the kids don't show up at school with a little D or a little R on their forehead. I mean, you've still got to teach right. them all. That's right. Yeah. But now, you know, but we're politicizing everything from what the curriculum looks like down to really granular levels, right? Uh, how you know, we teach, what sort of books oh, are in the yeah. library. Exactly. What's the content and how do you treat, you know, how do we talk about human slavery? How do we talk about... Um, our history relative to our indigenous peoples. How do we, you know, all of these things that have suddenly become charged, and mm -hmm. uh, not to mention all the stuff about gender identity and, and children who are working through gender identity issues, all of that has become such a red flag that, that we see the parties kind of backing one way to approach that or another. And so whether we wanted it or not, we seem to have a lot of politics going on at the school board. And as close as I'm watching school board elections and focusing on that, because first things first here, I was struck this week by uh, some of the endorsements that I saw in the legislative primaries. Uh, that won't happen until, you know, they're, 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 they're seven months away. And I guess I wasn't surprised as much by the endorsements. Iaki came out with 34 endorsements, mostly moderate Republicans, mainstream, Main Street Republicans. Idaho Freedom Action, you know, with a lot of ties to the Idaho Freedom Foundation, made six endorsements. Hardline conservatives, sometimes uh, these candidates in, in conflict, I mean, they'll, they'll face off in these primaries. So I wasn't surprised by who they endorsed, but I was really surprised by when they endorsed. Well, I'd, I'd rather they wait, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't think, uh, actually, I think if we went and pulled voters off the street, they'd probably be okay with us waiting a little while to get those campaigns started. But I think that's a reflection of how much more money it's costing to run an effective campaign. So I think they want a running start. And maybe there's something to be said about if you get your hat in the ring earlier that you could... Um, scare off people who might file later on if they see that you're already uh, established and have some money in the bank, you know, to fund your campaign, that you might scare off some future people who might throw their, throw their name in. And that's a really good point, and I hadn't thought about that until you mentioned that there's a preemptive element to this. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were joking about it in the staff meeting when I was preparing to write about this, that, you know, Phil Bat and or Helen Chenoweth could could come from the dead and come back and say, I want to run for legislature. And these groups would say, well, we, we 
we love your politics, but look, we are endorsing that race, so so tough luck. But this does preempt potentially living candidates from jumping into these races. You know, if you know Ayaki has endorsed a candidate, if the Freedom Action Pack has endorsed, I mean, it, it it could narrow the field. Oh, absolutely, and I think that's why um, elected officials who are in absolutely safe seats will still amass a big war chest, right, uh, of campaign contributions in, because it works to scare off people who might run against you in the next cycle. And, and if you have some money in your war chest, you can, if you don't need it, you can spread it around to those that you would like to see win. And it all seems like a harbinger of what we've seen in past election cycles for legislature, that the price of admission to run for legislature seems to be going up, up, up. It is going up. And, you know, especially when you think about the cost relative to what you're getting for being a legislator. I mean, it's not a lot of money and it's a year round set of obligations and demands that, um, you know, probably make it really hard to have a regular day job. And pay for all the campaign costs. So um, that means that those people who want to serve are going to have to turn to donors to give them the money they need to pay for the campaign stuff. And uh, so if you're not willing to be a fundraiser, you're not good at fundraising, uh, or you don't look attractive to those PACs that are funding, you know, you have less of a chance of getting elected. Or if fundraising isn't something that, as a candidate, you're you're good at, That's you right. outsource that out to a, a third party. Yeah. Oh, there's a whole industry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> and, and again, I mean, you know, we're talking about you know, a school board candidate loaning himself fifty thousand dollars for a campaign, but you know, the same, the same kind of dynamic is going on here when you have legislative candidates, you know, moderates and conservatives, you know, raising hundred thousand dollars for a primary, like we saw. The last cycle. Yeah, that was, I mean, all of them are spending more. I mean, now there are some rural districts where the, you know, the Republicans are running unopposed. Um, and so maybe there's not as much money to be spent in those races, but um, maybe we're starting so early because more and more we realize that the real race is the Republican primary. Um, and so the you know you're getting started earlier because really the finish line isn't November it's it's May it's May and the real split is here I mm-hmm. mean between the two factions of the Republican Party we're seeing that over the open primaries initiative we're seeing that you know in, in these endorsements we even saw it in the legislature's failure to come to some kind of an agreement about what to do about a special session what to do about a presidential primary. Yeah, and the voters are going to be the ones who pay for that in their time and effort because the amount of effort it takes to show up and vote in a primary election is nothing compared to the amount of time and effort that you have to expend to attend a caucus uh, for the presidential primaries. Even if it's a presidential caucus where presumably uh, former President Trump is going to have the inside track winning a Republican caucus in Idaho, it still takes time to go through that process. And if you're, and if you're showing up wanting to make a case for Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or whoever, you're in for a long night. Absolutely. you're just in for a long night. You're in for a long night. It's also, um, we end up having to rely on the organizational 
powers of the county Republican parties, oh, and Democrats too, right? So not every county has a robust set of volunteers and organizational skills, and not every county has a suitable public building that makes yeah. for a good place to have a caucus. So uh, 44 challenges, right, you know, to organize these events. Right, and, and there is kind of a school nexus there too, because even though caucuses are held at night, there, there have been concerns about using schools as polling places. I wonder if there's going to be concerns about using schools as a caucus site, because yep. maybe a caucus date coincides with a basketball game or, you know, Seems yeah. like the caucus would have... Drama club practice or what have you. Yeah, I mean, both of them impact school grounds and people coming and going and so on. But um, it seems like because the space that you would need would be bigger, I think, for the caucus situation than you would need for a simple polling place. Um, you might be monopolizing parts of the school that you wouldn't if, if you just had the voting booths in one part of the cafeteria or the gym or something. And it's interesting, it's just ironic that, you know, as much attention as was paid to the amendment to allow the legislature to call itself back into session. First time out of the gate, it didn't happen because of infighting between the House and the Senate. Absolutely. And and that infighting, I think, is reflective of the trouble the party's having everywhere mm -hmm. in uh, reconciling its further right factions with its more moderate factions. Right. And we saw that last night on the national scale, of course, when the Speaker of the House is ousted yeah. by, you know, his own party. So, um, you know, the, we have our version and uh, the national Republicans have theirs. I, I feel like, yeah, we can't compare state house dysfunction <laughs> to Capitol Hill dysfunction, but it is kind of an offshoot of the same thing. It is. That yeah. tension. Yeah. And we've seen this tension between the House and the Senate, a more conservative House, a more moderate Senate, especially at the leadership level. Yeah. Yes, uh, I think though that um, the national example seems to be really they're just dead in their tracks, right? Like the, nobody knows what's going to happen next with the Congress, um, and except for this presidential primary thing, we have seen our legislature figure out a way to kind of get the business done that they need to get done. Um, the, the whole thing is just fascinating to me that there's an oversight with, you know, I mean, how this happened, right? That they wanted to kind of punish schools, if you will, by, by limiting the number of elections that they're allowed to mm -hmm. hold. And in the end, ended up making this big mess for both parties that they have to, on the fly now, come up with how they're going to do their caucuses. There's never a shortage of politics to talk about, yes. <laughs> and it's, so it's fun to catch up and, and kind of, you know, cover the landscape from school boards to Congress here. Yes, well, uh, even though uh, people have different motivations for coming to our electoral processes, I, I'm always grateful that so many people are willing to be public servants and serve in these relatively thankless jobs. So we're lucky in the sense that we have people who are willing to, you know, keep the school um, systems running, and uh, I can't imagine a harder and less, you know, uh, more thankless job, but I'm certainly grateful for all the people who throw their hat in the ring. You're not in it for the money, and you're certainly, <laughs> in this day and age, you're not in it for the public accolades. Ex absolutely, yeah. Dr. Ward, thanks for coming in. It's always good to catch up and to, to talk politics and, and connect some of these dots. So well, thanks thank for having me. Again, that was Stephanie Witt, a Boise State University political science professor. 
As I wrap up the podcast this week, I do want to say a couple of words about uh, J.J. Saldana, a friend of the podcast, a frequent guest, and a a friend of the Latino community. Um, His advocacy, uh, it's hard to put into words, and and I did try to put it into words last week. I wrote a piece about J.J. and his work in education and his work as an advocate for the Latino community. If you haven't seen that story yet, you can check that out at idahoednews.org. But you can also check out a piece uh, from earlier this week uh, from Carly Flandro. She had a chance to sit in on a Hispanic Youth Summit at Idaho State University. That is a big part of JJ's legacy. Those summits are are big events uh, for students as they get a chance to uh, make connections with higher education. And in many cases, uh, they get to uh, go home with scholarships that they can put towards their education. Carly has a really good piece about the summit in Pocatello. So do check that one out. A lot more to get to on the website at idahoednews.org. I take a closer look at what is going on with the liftoff of the Idaho launch program. The application window opened on Tuesday, and we take a closer look at how that is unfolding. And also had a chance to talk to some school counselors from around the state about how they're preparing to help students navigate through this new program. So you can check that story out at idahoheadnews.org. Carly has a story about the latest round of test scores that were released uh, by uh, State Superintendent Debbie Critchfield's uh, shop. Uh, We have those numbers and what they mean and kind of what we're still looking for in the way of uh, additional data. Darren Svahn, our reporter now in North Idaho, he relocated up there a couple of weeks ago and continues to do a lot of work in North Idaho. And not just about West Bonner, by the way. He's writing about uh, this week about the Lakeland School District and the Lake Ponderé District. He has uh, stories up at idahoednews.org. And we expect a lot more uh, good stuff from Darren as he uh, gets settled in in the panhandle. Follow us at iodoednews.org every day as we give you the latest in education policy and education politics. Uh, you can follow us on, oh, what do we call it now? Do we call it the X? I guess we do. Whatever it used to be. It used to be Twitter. Do we call it X? I don't know. It, we're still there at iodoednews. Uh, check us out there. We uh, we tweet out. I'm sorry. I'm old school. We tweet out links to our latest stories and bulletins on breaking items. You can follow us at Facebook, which is still known as Facebook, uh, and comment on our stories there. And keep an eye out for the next podcast and keep an eye out for Carly Flanders' next podcast as she continues with her Teacher's Lounge podcast. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Take care. Take care.